Welcome to Purdue Crop Chat, a regular podcast from Hoosier Ag Today and the Purdue University Extension Service, featuring Purdue Extension soybean specialist, Dr. Sean Castile, and Extension corn specialist, Dr. Dan Quinn. On this episode, Sean and Dan welcome Purdue Professor of Weed Science, Dr. Bill Johnson, to discuss weed management and how farmers have dealt with short supplies this season. My understanding that a lot of these custom applicators and even some farmers are doing some horse trading to get liberty where it's needed the most and they're trading products and uh, just trying to make sure they've got enough liberty to at least cover one post-emergence application. This podcast is made possible by the Indiana Corn Marketing Council and Indiana Soybean Alliance. Your Indiana corn and soybean checkoff investments yesterday are paying off today. New research, new uses, demand creation, bringing dollars back to the farm. Check it out at yourcheckoff.org. Now your host for Purdue Crop Chat, who's your ag today's, Eric Pfeiffer. Well, we're back for another edition of the Purdue Crop Chat podcast. I'm Eric Pfeiffer. I'm joined by Dan Quinn, Purdue Extension corn specialist. Hello, Dan. Hey, Eric. And Sean Castile is here, Purdue Extension soybean specialist. Sean, hello. Howdy, Eric. We have a special guest we will introduce in just a few moments, but first, let's just get caught up on where we're at. Uh, this this whole season, just a gosh, month and a half ago, we were talking about 2019 and you know, farmers being a little worried, concerned, and then bam, things just kind of opened up here. Uh, it's been awfully nice here recently, a lot of progress in the, the crop progress reports. Uh, we're recording this on Monday morning, so we don't have the latest one yet, but I'd have to say we're pretty darn close to being done here, Dan. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Um, you know, starting the season, we're a little bit, we were behind last year, we were behind that five-year average, and then recently, you know, really in the last, you know, two to three weeks or so, you can see those recent crop progress reports have been above that five-year average, been above that five-year average, so that crop, that planting progress really significantly um, improved over the last couple of weeks, and I would, you know, I'd be, if I was a betting man, I would say it's got to be pretty close to about 100% when that report comes out today. And the folks that I'm talking to, they're pretty excited about how quickly the the corn crop came up the you know emergence has been yeah. good it's it's been solid i mean they're they're pretty excited about how things worked even with this we'll call it later yeah planting start yeah yeah you know you always folks are worried about planting later but kind of one of the benefits of planting later is that you're typically planting into warmer soils so we had a couple of weeks where a lot of guys got in and were able to plant and then we had weather in the mid 80s um, this week's supposed to be really hot um, this week um, so with those warmer soil temperatures that corn just gets out of the ground a lot quicker we've seen instances you know that corn coming out of the ground four or five days um, which is really good for that uniform emergence and that rapid emergence that's what we want uh, with the corn well, enough about corn. It's, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's not as much of that around here as soybeans this year. So let's right. talk soybeans, Sean. I mean, things look pretty good that way, too. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, we have progressed in a, a fast fashion over the last couple of weeks. We did talk about it was a delay in the first mm. half of May into April. We didn't have the planning progress like we were used to. 2020 and 2021 were exceptionally fast planting years. Uh, by the time we got to about the 20th of May, we had half our soybean crop planted and then it just went straight line up. And so we put a lot of beans in the ground over the last few weeks. 
Uh, like you said, we, we don't have the report yet, but last week are 84% planted a week ago. I dare say that we've got all our first crop beans in the ground now. Whatever's left is probably going to be our double crop beans. So I'm guessing we'll have probably 95% planted by the report that comes out today. Uh, we certainly had some of those initial scares of, okay, do we have a good stand or not? Uh, some crusting issues that may have popped up. Uh, I did see a few rotary hose running a few mm -hmm. we weeks ago, or, you know, probably three weeks ago now, but we would get a, a little rain here and there that would help the crop. I'd say both crops probably yeah. get up. Um, maybe some issues that would, were popping up with some of the cooler temperatures and moistures for a while on those initial development and then turn, we had 85, 90 degree days. So beans are definitely popping. They're, they're growing fast. Um, some early Mays I was just looking at today were V V5. So chugging right along mm -hmm. middle of Mays or V3. So very good growth and, and development. So hopefully get a good canopy developing. Um, I dare say we probably have some weeds that are growing just that same pace <laughs> as well. Yeah. Well, and we're going to talk about weeds here in just a moment, but but first, I, I'm not hearing a whole lot of complaints from farmers this year about much of anything at this point. They're they're pretty happy with how things are going. Uh, again, emergence has been good. Replant, not really a big conversation this yeah. year. Is it is it time for the hula hoop now, or to, to put that out <laughs> sure. there? Or are we past that now? Are we are we good to go? Now, are we talking about the hula hoop for the the Fourth of July party kind of thing that we're prepping for, or the kids going out there with the splash pad? Uh, yeah, no, doing stand counts. We still want to do that, and we talked about last time whether to, to get a drone just to get up to get a bird's eye view to take up some spots that aren't looking as good uh, yeah we still want to take stand counts to see where those are at uh, soybeans in particular we've got a lot of room we've got mm -hmm. a lot of room in terms of if it's 70,000 plants to 120 140 180,000 they're going to adapt um, we certainly had some spots that probably did get uh, spotted in touched in that are ponded uh, so those are probably already done if we're doing stand counts, usually we want to do you know, maybe VC, V1, V2 on the soybeans. So one, two trifoliates to say, okay, do I need to do any fill-in or not? That's the time to make the, the call. These ones that are already V3, V4, I mean, those are gone. They already made the decision to branch. Uh, but yes, whether it's a hula hoop or a tape measure, still like to get out there, see see what our stand's like. I dare say of the two crops, it's probably even more important on the, the corn side. You know, it's just weak. It can't adapt whenever it's got a poor stand, <laughs> right, Dan? So, I mean, you got to be out there timely to make that yeah, call. Yeah, yeah, you know, we just, we can't, you know, corn just takes a little bit closer attention you know and just can't adapt like those baby, beans so saying. you know okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a really good time uh you know i've been saying this really the last week or so in some of the fields that i've walked it's a really good time to scout your corn huh? so there's been a lot of really good looking corn but there's been some fields that you know haven't been the greatest and a lot of those fields we can see so a little bit of the sins that went on with mm -hmm. you know the delayed planting um i've seen you know you can see the sprayer tracks. I've seen tillage passes. I've seen a little bit of sidewall compaction um, as well in fields for, for, for farmers. So been out on a few of those calls um, that their corn just isn't looking as, as good as they hoped. And I think it was due to it went in a little bit wet. Some of those field activities were done a little bit wet. Um, seeing a fair amount of sulfur deficiency uh, really around the central Indiana part. Um, so taking multiple calls for farmers on that. So seeing a lot of sulfur deficiency start to to show up in this part, really in the central Indiana area. 
And then in the southeast Indiana, we started to see some too. So it's just a good time to scout, you know, take some tissue samples. You know, tissue samples do a really good job um, for diagnosing sulfur deficiency in corn. So taking them from the good spots and the bad spots, and you can supplement those with soil samples as well. But soil samples tend to be not the best uh, for diagnosing sulfur. Um, but just starting to see a lot of those kind of creep up. But as we get these warm temperatures this week, we did get some moisture mm-hmm. over the weekend. I expect a lot of that corn to kind of come out of this, maybe come out of some of that sulfur deficiency as those roots get established but we did have some issues of some compaction sidewall compaction stuff that was just done a little bit too wet and you know that typically happens when we're when we're delayed when it comes to planting right delayed in terms of okay the progress wasn't where we wanted so then we push it on those hours that we had so maybe not as perfect and i dare say that some of the the rains that we had i mean they were spotty in nature so those Mm -hmm. that got it you're probably not seeing as much issue because it had a little bit of grace uh, pour down on them quite literally versus those that didn't get the rain. So their their roots are restricted. And so having some stand issues, uh, some color variation in the fields, I've certainly seen that. And even when you can see the side dress rig has gone through there, there just hadn't been the water to move that nitrogen over. And if they put in ATS or any Mm -hmm. other sulfur source. So um, I dare say you're probably going to see some of that change. Yeah, but I, you know, I expect with this, especially this week, that corn is going to be up and moving. Uh, yes. We're starting to see, you can, if you look across fields and you see really what's interesting this time of year, you can see rapid growth syndrome in corn. So you can see where, if you look across the field, you can kind of see really bright, uh, almost translucent, kind of really light yellow leaves emerging from that corn plant. And that just means the corn plant is growing so fast um, that those tightly wound whirl, uh, leaves in that whirl just can't keep up in that plant and then they as they receive sunlight so you can actually see that and you can actually see um, leaves tearing too on corn leaves this time of year and that's just that rapid growth syndrome so that corn is growing so fast i'm starting to see that um, in quite a few fields so then do you think with i mean we, we've got the thunderstorm activities mm-hmm. that are going to be happening right yeah. so then even if we don't get hail per se a hard rain or a good wind on those those plants that are growing that fast mm-hmm. Uh, again, I'm the soybean guy here, so I'm anticipating that those are going to get kind of ratted, right? The rattled edges and everything else with those leaves, right? Yeah, yep, yep. yep. And two, I think when corn grows as fast as it does, it can impact some of that, that stock strength too sure. um, later in the season. So, Guys, let's take a quick break here early on, and we'll come back. And, uh, you know, I just talked with a farmer last week. He just wrapped up planting in the last couple of weeks, and he says, you know, my corn looks good. It's it's coming up and emerging, and my, my soybeans look good, but... The weeds are growing just as fast. So um, we're going to bring in the weed guy, Dr. Bill Johnson, right after this on the Purdue Crop Chat podcast. Planting a seed is an act of faith. And even if it makes it to maturity, Mother Nature and markets determine the value, right? Not when you've got your corn and soybean checkoffs. The checkoff is like a little seed coat of protection. It's like planting a penny to grow a dollar. In fact, with investments in research, new uses, and demand creation, We've seen a $12 return to the farm for every soybean checkoff dollar invested. Check out your Indiana checkoffs at yourcheckoff.org. Welcome back to the Purdue Crop Chat Podcast. I'm Eric Pfeiffer. I'm here with Dan Quinn and Sean Castile with Purdue Extension. And uh, guys, we really did want to talk weeds because uh, they're they're popping up. They're, they're out there. Uh, I would imagine that, uh, you know, all of these great conditions for corn and soybeans to grow are probably the perfect conditions for weeds to grow too right dr bill johnson that is correct Uh, a weed will will grow under any kind of weather condition (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, uh, Bill Johnson is here. He is a uh, Purdue Extension. Uh, is it weed specialist? Is that what we call you? Does that work? Yes, okay. that works great for me. <laughs> um, and and weeds really have been popping up, and uh, you know it's it's really been a, a point of focus this year. Uh, you know, we talked last year about some of the potential shortages and and everything that was going to happen. First, if you could update us a little bit on that, are we still seeing shortages and? How are farmers dealing with it? Have they been better weed managers like we thought they might have to be? Good question. I, I think there were a lot of growers that, uh, that took our advice and, and were more aggressive in managing their soil applied residual program with the idea that the two main active ingredients that were going to be in short supply were Roundup and Liberty, which are the post-emerge herbicides that are used on the most acres. So um, I think in large part, what, I, what I've heard from my contact within industry and the custom application businesses is that uh, from a soil applied standpoint, we kind of turned out okay. Where the big challenge is coming now is the shortage of glufosinate or the Liberty-based herbicides. Uh, my understanding that a lot of these custom applicators and even some farmers are doing some horse trading to get Liberty where it's needed the most and they're trading products and uh, just trying to make sure they've got enough Liberty to at least cover one post-emergence application. My, my sense right now is that uh, there, there really isn't too much ur urgency with regard to a glyphosate or a Roundup shortage, but there, there definitely is with Liberty. So with the Liberty shortage and the idea of make sure that you've got it, you're going to do one shot. Of those two actives, right, you talked about Roundup, you talked about Liberty, of the two, you definitely want to be timely in terms of weed size and probably more so on the Liberty side than the uh, Roundup side? Yeah, the way I like to explain the difference between Roundup and Liberty is that, number one, um, Roundup historically has been a more broad-spectrum herbicide, and it, you have more flexibility to make mistakes with it, which means spraying big weeds, not getting the right um, application time of day, um, maybe messing up a little bit with, with an adjuvant package if you need an adjuvant package. With Liberty, there's a lot less flexibility. Uh, Liberty behaves more like a contact herbicide. It, it works much better on a nice, hot, sunny, humid day uh, than it does under cool, cloudy weather conditions. And so you have to, you have to manage Liberty more aggressively than you do Roundup. And so it's, it's really important to get yourself in a situation where you've maximized the activity of that herbicide and you're not in a respray um, type of uh, situation with a failed application with the first treatment. So I'm looking at this week's forecast, 92 degrees today, 98 <laughs> tomorrow. It seems like a perfect Liberty Spray application week in that regard. Is there, is there a point that you can go too high in temps or is there any, any issues on that side of it? You know, we haven't seen problems with, um, in terms of efficacy with Liberty if it's too hot and too humid. Okay. I mean, it makes it work almost as good as glyphosate under those weather conditions. Um, now, what happens under these uh, conditions where, as you guys have talked about earlier, crops are growing more rapidly and we have an adequate soil water supply is your, your herbicides tend to be a little more active on the crop. Mm -hmm. And I always tell people, don't panic if you see a little stress from a post-emerge herbicide. That just tells you it's working. I mean, if it's working on the crop, then it's working better on the weeds. Okay. So um, be happy for that. So in that, I mean, I, I was walking fields this morning and I saw some phyto from last week's application, same thing, and it wasn't nearly as hot last week as it is this week, but it's gonna occur, especially whenever we put those mixes together. Again, it's good signs in terms of, okay, we're gonna grow out of that, we're gonna have metabolize it, we're good to go. It's better to have the hot with some good soil moisture than, okay, we're hot and dry, right? Mm -hmm. Because then at that point, I mean, do we have 
more uh, injury on the crop side? Do we have uh, more concern with weed control in that scenario? Yeah, hot and dry is usually a bad thing because the plant will put on a thicker cuticle. Mm -hmm. And typically what happens is once the plant puts that thicker cuticle on a leaf, that cuticle thickness on that leaf is set for the rest of the growing season. So in order for that, um, for that plant to be as susceptible to the herbicide as it was before the hot dry spell, you need new leaves mm -hmm. coming out on that plant that aren't laying down that much cuticle on the, on the leaf surface. So generally speaking, once we get into these hot and dry spells, if plants aren't putting on leaves, you have a plant that's, that's more resilient or more resistant sure. to the herbicide just because of the, the physiological changes that it underwent. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So in terms of those two herbicides, uh, do we have any other herbicides that are in supply issues that we potentially thought about this last uh, winter and fall? Well, good question. There might be some minor shortages here and there of some other active ingredients, but uh, nothing has really popped up as a common conversation mm -hmm. between uh, some of the different dealerships that I've talked to. So what they're, again, able to do is they, they do some horse trading. Maybe they trade some Enlist for some Straight Liberty, or maybe they trade some ex Extend for uh, for some some straight glyphosate. So there's, there's those type of things going on, but um, nothing hits the urgency button on a broad scale like this Liberty shortage has. Dan, yeah. go ahead. So I was going to ask you, you know, corn is growing really fast right now. Uh, too, a lot of planting got done later this year. Um, you know, you mentioned we talked before uh, we did the podcast today about, you know, growth restrictions on corn. You know, what are the things to be concerned about with that corn growing as fast as it is? Is there certain herbicides, certain things that farmers should be watching for um, when it comes to that, those post-emergence applications with some of that growth restrictions on that, those corn crops? Yeah, and I think you raised a good point. Mm. I think you raised a good point earlier, Dan, with, uh, with corn is just a crop that requires a little bit closer attention to mm. detail on a lot of different things. But mm -hmm. from a weed control standpoint, with post-emerge herbicides, um, the bulk of them have a cutoff of around the V6 growth stage because after the V6 growth stage, some of these reproductive processes that are initiated in the corn plant are more susceptible to being impacted negatively by herbicides. Um, now, you do have the ability to, to go up to V8 with, uh, with glyphosate and some of the glyphosate-based products. Um, with Liberty, with straight Liberty, you can go up to V6. If you use a product that has Liberty and uh, Topramazone in it, you can actually go up to V7. Not exactly sure why that one allows more flexibility, but mm -hmm. that's one of the kind of the nuances of, of that label. So really, if, if I think about the bulk of the corn that I have seen on my travels over the last three or four days, I think there's a lot of corn that's at V6 mm -hmm. or maybe even a stage or two past yeah. that. So essentially, we, we're really about done with post-emerge spraying in sure. corn. And anything that's done now uh, most likely is off-label, or you have products like dicamba in corn, some of the bleacher herbicides in corn. They can go on, on larger corn um, from a label standpoint. That doesn't mean that you're going to get great weed control, but it can go on uh, later growth stages. The other thing that, that can be done uh, once corn has passed the, the over-the-top growth stage is there are, there are several herbicides that can be put on with drop nozzles. Mm -hmm. So drop nozzles basically drop the sprayer nozzle down in between the rows so you're not spraying it mm -hmm. in the whirl. Um, there's not a lot of guys that, that, that'll do those drop applications, but particularly if you're dealing like late-season grass and morning glories and things like that, burr cucumbers, another one, 
uh, these drop nozzle mm -hmm. applications can can help out there. So I actually want to take a pause on the end season because I, I was curious about, did you have much occurring with the, the pre-season, some of the burn down, mm -hmm. any issues that we're seeing in the corn and soybean? And then we'll b bounce back, but it just kind of crossed my mind. I was like, you know, we had a roller coaster with temperatures and field conditions. So uh, to me, it seemed like a recipe for some potential injury. What were you seeing that was coming across your desk in the lab? Yeah, so um, we've we started tracking uh, the number of uh, drift cases um, in, in the work that I do, probably about 10 years or so ago, when we knew the, the dicamba-resistant mm -hmm. soybean technology was coming to the market. And historically, we have anywhere from about 25 to 30 um, drift cases that come in from what I call our burn-down season. Mm -hmm. So basically, when these burn-down treatments are made to no-till fields and corn and soybeans, we would have about 25 to 30 of these come in, and they're primarily samples where the herbicide drifted onto a homeowner property and then they, the state chemist comes out, does an investigation, and, and then the samples make it into our plant and pest diagnostic lab. So 25 to 30 is average. And so if you think about that from the standpoint of 92 counties in the state, it's about one every three counties, which mm -hmm. is kind of what I consider to be normal. And that's, you know, I, I think that number is actually pretty good given mm -hmm. the geography that, that we farm in Indiana. Um, the last two years, our number of burn down cases were down in the low 20s. Uh, this year we were at 44. So okay. this year we were double the average of the last two years. And I think a lot of that has to do with our compressed growing yep. season, a lot of sprayers mm -hmm. operating whenever the wheels would, uh, would turn across the field. Mm -hmm. And again, that number is a little bit higher than normal. So um, hopefully, you know, again, if we, if we put it in perspective, that's about one every two counties or so. So sure. it's a little bit denser than normal. Um, but uh, that's kind of where we're at for this year. It kind of makes sense. And, you know, we talked about it in the start of this, how slow the planting progress was, and then it went up. And But we certainly had those that had more than others. In 21, I remember in particular, I, I pulled a graph or a, a map of the state of Indiana. We're abnormally dry for the whole month of, of March and April. So we had a lot of activities already going on a year ago in mm -hmm. April of 21. This year, I really didn't have it. So I think that is a combination, as you described, multiple plantings going on later in development. And so you probably also had, if it's a homeowner version, a little bit more of their spring flowers and everything else uh, emerging at that point versus a month earlier's application. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And, you know, and a lot of times, um, you know, when, when weather gets warm enough to spray, we have windy conditions. If you don't have sensitive vegetation that is, uh, you know, sprouted or budded out or anything like that, typically we don't see much of an impact. But right. I think the late burn down season for us was, you know, had a lot of homeowner properties that were more uh, susceptible to, to seeing some injury. So that's on the drift side. Was there much in terms of the crop injury itself? You know, some of the, I know sometimes in the soybean world, if we have cool wet conditions and early growth is limited, not metabolizing uh, the pre, uh, we have some injury. Did we have much of that going on this year? We've only gotten one sample that I'm aware of where yeah. we had a pre-emerge herbicide injury come into the clinic. So I would say that number this year is probably lower than average from my perspective. And again, I think we've planted into warmer soils in general because yeah, of the, the so late too. planting date. Makes sense. You're listening to Purdue Crop Chat, brought to you by your Indiana corn and soybean checkoff organizations. Visit yourcheckoff.org. Dr. Bill Johnson is here with us on the Purdue Crop Chat podcast. And, and Bill, I guess just from a, an overall standpoint, what are you hearing from folks? What, what's the focus here as we move forward? Uh, because, again, we, we talked about earlier, planting is 
pretty well wrapped up for the most part here around the state. Uh, but but again, those weeds are growing just as fast as the, the corn and soybeans. So so what's the focus right now? Yeah, I think the focus right now would, would obviously be uh, finishing up any post-emerge spray operations that need to be done in corn because of the advanced um, growth stages that, that we're seeing in the corn crop. The other thing that we have in front of us as well for the folks that planted uh, dicamba resistant beans is we have a June 20th cutoff date, which is a week from today. Um, still have a lot of soybean fields that, that are dirty and, and need to be sprayed. And we do, have, uh, we do have some thunderstorms coming through the northern part of the state today, depending on rainfall amounts that could kick us out for, for a few days and kind of put us under a little bit of pressure to get these spray applications done before the 20th. But the other thing that's layered in with that is after the rain quits, uh, we're, it's gonna be hot. And uh, when, when we have these hot, humid weather conditions, we have inversion conditions. We had an inversion in the Lafayette area this morning. And so that's a perfect opportunity for um, spray particles to hang in that, in that uh, foggy cloud. And then they'll move wherever that foggy cloud moves. Um, so my guess is that we'll have inversions uh, the rest of the week. And then we also have some extremely hot weather, which, which makes uh, volatility losses from dicamba much worse as well. So, um, we could be set up to have a, a pretty um, extensive year in terms of off-target dicamba injury because of the, the, the delayed planting season and the fact that we're up against a spray date cutoff with some weather that can uh, promote more off-target movement. Well, that was my next question is that date of June 20th. I mean, that, that has to be a little rough for folks with this condensed planting or this, mm -hmm. uh, this condensed season here. Um, I guess I'm going to put you on the spot. What are your thoughts on the date? Well, I, th so the date was put in place because it was a way for our state chemist's office to manage the caseload. When they looked at three years of historical data on dicamba drift complaints that, that went through their office, over half of them came from applications made after June 20th. So that goes back to 17, 18, and 19, and I'm pretty sure we would have had at least one compressed planting season within those three years. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't recall exactly which year. 18 would have been that way, a slow start and, the fa and then a fast mm -hmm. recovery like we have this year. Okay, and then, yeah, so we had, yep. basically we had increasing numbers of cases each of those three years, again, with one compressed planting season. So for, from my standpoint, I still think that the cutoff date is the right thing to do because it really forces us to think about how do we manage our weeds and soybeans such that that, that cutoff date is not such an important part of the, of the management tactic. Um, I do know the state of Illinois extended their cutoff date last year when they had a compressed planting season in, in parts of the state and they had a record number of cases last year, again. So, I'm, I'm not in favor of, of extending um, the, the cutoff date. And the reality of the matter is that um, hopefully what a lot of these guys have done if, they, if, if they're planting dicamba beans is, is they planted the extend flex trait, which also gives them the opportunity to use Roundup and Liberty after that dicamba cutoff date. So it's not like they're completely out of tools. Um, they just don't have the ability to spray dicamba. Yeah, that was going to be my question is, you know, guys, you know, are compressed. They're trying to spray as fast as they can. You know, what else can they do? You know, it hits June 20th and they're just not done with their soybeans. They got weeds. You know, you mentioned Glyph St. Liberty, but is there kind of other considerations, you know, once they, 
other things they can do uh, to control weeds when they get past that if they don't have the opportunity to use dicamba anymore. Just yeah. get out there by hand, right? Just pick them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Iron out, you know, get the hoe out there. <laughs> yeah, we got hand weeding, we got cultivation, but we do have the ability to, to use Liberty um, if they can get their hands on it. Maybe they can trade their dicamba for Liberty if they can find somebody that doesn't have a cutoff date in an adjacent state. Um, they do have the ability to use Roundup. They have the ability to use some of the chemistry that we've used prior to these traits. Now, they're, all, they're not all great options to use, um, but it is something that, that can be used in those fields. Yeah, you talk about some injury, warmer, hotter temperatures. You think about bringing in some PPOs or uh, you think about uh, like the flex stars and all that. So there, there's probably going to be a little bit more brownie, a little crispiness of the beans for a while. They will grow out of it, but uh, that will come with some of these herbicides that get yeah. traded in or added in. Yes, that, that's correct. And, and again, with these PPO herbicides too, we generally don't think of them as being great big weed herbicides. Yep. So what we would hope um, would happen is that the folks that are still using that technology, if they're in non-GMO or they're in a straight Roundup Ready or a straight Liberty Link, is that what they would spray that stuff on the early yep. on the early side, mm -hmm. and yep. then they would save their glufosinate for later applications. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. So I have one curiosity with this. So uh, we were delayed in planting on both crops, but then a rapid increase. So uh, corn is growing fast, but there's still a fair number of acres that are within label. And, you know, dicamba is used in, in corn quite a bit. So what's your thoughts on, okay, that's not the same dicamba that we use in most of our soybeans. So uh, is there some potential there? You think about the weather we've got coming up. So some volatility, some of those issues on the corn dicamba application and then our neighboring soybean fields. Yeah, and, and dicamba drift has been uh, been part of our landscape for, for many decades. Sure. Um, typically... The, there, there's different dicamba products that we use in corn. If, if we use the products like Distinct and Status, we use lower rates of dicamba because those products have some synergists or some sure. things in there that, that make them work better at the lower rates. Typically, we see less off-target um, movement concerns mm -hmm. when they use the, the Distinct and Status. Where we typically get into problems are when they're using the, the generic... Um, the generic dicambas that uh, that are not distinct in status because we use them at higher rates and those the salts of dicamba used in those formulations are, are more volatile than the salts of dicamba that are used in the distinct in status products makes sense mm -hmm. makes sense with dr bill johnson here on the purdue crop chat podcast and uh, uh bill you and i were were discussing here before the podcast you're wearing the shirt today uh, can we talk about the Take Action program that, that you uh, do in, in uh, conjunction with uh, the United Soybean Board and, and the Soy Checkoff? Just talk a little bit about the program and what it is you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, so the, so the Take Action program has been in place for about 10 years. And, and early on in, the, uh, in our educational efforts with, with uh, United Soybean Board, our, our efforts were really focused on trying to help growers manage herbicide-resistant weeds. So one of the most popular... Um, pieces that we did is we created this herbicide chart that discusses all the different herbicide sites of action um, because herbicide names are really really confusing in terms of trying to keep the active ingredient straight so we created this chart that very clearly delineates which site of action each herbicide active ingredient or herbicide product is associated with and so that um, that was done in it to to help people keep track of the number of times that they're spraying the same active ingredient so early on, we worked really hard on developing these educational pieces for managing our herbicide-resistant weeds, primarily in our Roundup Ready and non-GMO crops. 
over the last couple years, we spent a lot of time um, talking about stewardship of the new herbicide resistance traits, whether it's the auxin traits or the, the bleacher traits, whatever that happens to be. We've also done a series of webinars every winter where we'll get some expert on a weed management topic. Uh, in January and February, they will do a webinar which is done live and it's also recorded and then that is basically done to hit on a pertinent weed control topic that, that, was, uh, that had cropped up over the previous year. Um, the other thing that we've done over the last uh, seven or eight years is we've done these pest week uh, promotions where basically what we try to do is a different event every day to kind of promote the idea that herbicides, fungicides, and insecticides and insecticide resistant traits are all kind of a limited uh, resource in terms of managing our pests. And so how can we steward and manage these, uh, these tools more effectively to increase the, the longevity of them? So um, the, the whole Take Action project started out as a weed science project for about the first seven years, and then the last three years we allowed the plant pathologists and entomologists <laughs> to, to join us because they saw all the success we were having. <laughs> and, it, and, and again, it, it is kind of a, managing pests is, is kind of a, a multidimensional um, effort where we need to think about the, the same uh, management tactics to, to conserve these resources. Principles are very similar, right? You think about it being timely, there's thresholds that are created for a reason, and then we talked about, what, 10 minutes ago, about, okay, what labeled stage from the crop to the weeds itself, you, oh, we got a little more grace with this herbicide, so we tend to spray a little bit. Our four-inch weeds are more like the eight-inch weeds, and they are called four-inch weeds, so uh, certainly being stewards of that, um, those practices come into play. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, the, the scary thing is that is that people in jobs like we have sort of recognize that uh, bringing a pesticide to market, whether it's a fungicide, insecticide, or herbicide, is an expensive mm -hmm. and a very time-consuming process. And, and these things are resources. And once we lose them as resources, um, we simply don't have a lot of new chemistry in sure. toolboxes that we're aware of. And so we really need to do everything we can to preserve the tools that we have. So on that kind of on that front, you know, are you with dicamba being used and these, you know, extend beans, you know, I've heard some reports that is there, you know, those water hemp's or those polymer amaranths, those just difficult weeds, is there starting to be reports of dicamba resistance in, in some oh, weeds? Oh, in yeah. Yeah, we, we've already got dicamba resistance in uh, in water hemp in, in Palmer, and, and, um, and we have 2,4-D resistance as well in, mm -hmm. in mare's tail. Actually, we had 2,4-D resistant mare's tail back in 2003 in, oh. in Indiana. So um, no question that the toughest weeds develop resistance uh, most quickly. And one of the big things that, that concerns me about any new herbicide technology is we tend to just lean on it so hard. Mm -hmm. Despite all of our efforts at, at stewardship, um, we lean on that chemistry really hard until it's kind of broke and then we move off sure. to the next one. And, you know, I always used to use the analogy, by the time a field has, has seen a herbicide somewhere between 20 and 30 times, You've got, you've got a herbicide-resistant weed problem with at least one species. Mm. So if we could figure out ways to not use a chemistry every year, yeah. or maybe you only use it once in each crop, we would greatly extend the, the uh, longevity of many of our most important herbicides. And that comes back to, again, the importance of these residual herbicides, these pre-emergence pre herbicides as, it, as well. It's right? residual herbicides. It's, uh, it's managing the seed bank. It's, it's using tillage where appropriate. It's throwing a bunch of different tools yeah. at that weed. The more tools you can throw at it, the more confused it will be. 
Well, yeah, and it's using the tools the way they're meant to be. You know, I certainly have seen those that <laughs> use a wrench that's like a hammer, and you know, <laughs> we continue doing that. It doesn't work too well when you want to go back to use it like a wrench. Yep, that's exactly right. IWillTakeAction.com is the website, and that's happening. Uh, th there's a virtual event coming up Thursday, correct, Bill? Yes. Are, are you speaking at that? Yes. Are you on the lineup? Mm -hmm. Okay. So something to look forward to, IWillTakeAction.com. There's also uh, the Take Action app for Apple and Android. You can visit HoosierAgToday.com, and you can find those links uh, to get that stuff taken care of. Bill, any final thoughts here on weed control here as folks are wrapped up with planting and we move forward? I think, you know, probably the, the final message that I would leave you guys with, and Sean and, and Dan both commented on this, now is a great time to look at your fields, um, look at the crop health, but also look at your, your weed control. You know, what worked, what didn't work. Um, start planning for next year. Sean, what about you? Any final thoughts here, King Bean? Yeah, so I think <laughs> as we get into the season, scouting the fields, you know, yeah. we talked about stand counts, that's certainly still part of it, but then overall looking for patterns, looking for patterns from whether tire compaction from tillage or sprayers or a sidewall compaction just to be aware of what problems are occurring, uh, digging up the plants and if they look a little off uh, to understand why. So is it roots that are constricted? Or is there nodules that aren't quite developing to address that? Dan mentioned about uh, sulfur on, on corn. Soybeans, we really don't see a sulfur deficiency until later, uh, although it's a need, the sulfur is needed from get-go. It's needed as a cofactor for nodulation. So in the same way, looking at the nodules, but taking leaf samples to do that snapshot for nutritional status and then see if we can do any corrective action if we've got issues. Dan, what do you got? Yeah, I think the big thing that we've all touched on is, is scouting, the walking those fields, understanding what's going on in your fields, what problems are there. You know, if you have a UAV, some farmers do, and, you know, fly some of those fields just to get an idea of what's going on, looking for patterns. Um, yeah, I've seen instances of sprayer tracks, you know, tillage passes, some sidewall compaction. And if you are seeing issues, you know, figure out why you're having issues. You know, dig some of those plants, take a look at those roots, do some tissue sampling as well. You know, I mentioned before, we're seeing sulfur deficiency kind of show up really in those those high areas of those fields, those sandier areas of those fields are really where that sulfur deficiency shows up. So taking tissue samples, getting a snapshot, like Sean mentioned, of what that sulfur is in those plants and just, yeah, walking those fields and getting an idea of maybe what went wrong this year and maybe how we can prevent it from happening next year. Thanks for doing this, guys. I know uh, it's a busy time for everybody here as we wrap up planting, and, you know, you guys are, like, doing research and stuff, so appreciate you <laughs> coming together to do this. Bill, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Uh, really good information. We'll get this out to folks, and uh, we're going to try to do this again here in a couple of weeks and, and maybe uh, maybe talk disease at that point. That's what we're hoping for and uh, see what we can't come up with there. And I, I know Tar Spot is on the minds of a lot of people already yep. uh, trying to figure out what's going on there, so we'll uh, – We'll talk that here in a couple of weeks, hopefully. And uh, again, thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Purdue Crop Chat, a regular series featuring Purdue Extension's Dr. Dan Quinn and Dr. Sean Castile, made possible by the Indiana Corn and Soybean Checkoffs, the Indiana Corn Marketing Council, and the Indiana Soybean Alliance. The checkoffs are pleased to help bring you agronomy insights from Purdue Extension, Purdue Crop Chat, a service of Purdue University Extension, and Who's Your Ag Today, timely, relevant, credible.